Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Last weekend, three men escaped an immigrant detention center in Aurora, Colorado. The center was built to hold 1,500 people, and conditions there have been scrutinized after recent outbreaks of chickenpox and mumps. The three men climbed a fence in broad daylight and subsequently fled. Initial searches of the area failed to locate them. The following is a statement by Miguel Peralta, an indigenous anarchist in Mexico. He was just sentenced to 50 years in prison for his participation in the movement in Oaxaca for indigenous autonomy and dignity. The cell where I live is kind of dark. Fragments of light enter from two directions. On one side, there are shadows of a fence with four vertical bars and four horizontal bars, all of which are not visible. Next to that, another fence can be seen, but in the form of blinds, elongated, not very wide. The other side, where the light enters, is almost the same, but disfigured. The scarce shadows manage to reflect small figures in the shapes of small squares with different shades. Outside, in the corridor, by the window that has 24 bars covering it, is a wall recently painted with a blue sign that says, Restricted Area. And if you lift up your head and look, Behind the wall, there are nine young almond trees, aligned, green, almost all year. On more than three occasions, they have been pruned, which has limited their growth. If one looks further, behind the almond trees, there is an old leafy mango tree. In three years, it has only come to bloom once, since the month of January. It does not produce mangoes, and I do not have the least idea what it needs. Even further is a very tall coconut palm tree, approximately 25 meters in height. Its fruits are small, you almost can't see them. Further in the distance, you can look at the stars, the clouds, freedom, and a bit of the universe. Very little separates us, don't you think? Yet we are far away. You might ask, how can I see so much? The place where I'm located is on the upper floor of the prison. This time of year, the heat is unbearable. You sweat at every moment. I try to get air by waving an object, a book, or a shirt. Like that, the night comes to an end, while I write, trying to remember to dedicate some written lines to the compass that have had long-term prison sentences imposed on them. I remember, when I wrote something last year for June 11th, I still had not been sentenced to 50 years in prison. I interpreted time differently. It was like waiting for a bus to travel. I can see the final court hearing as the correct place, space, and time to take back my freedom. But in that moment, it did not happen. I had a hard time imagining, understanding, and feeling how the monotonous days, years, and decades in confinement are endured. Then I imagined the compass to Silva and Sebastian, and I asked myself, what have they done to not break down, to be strong, to endure so much humiliation from the system and its jailers? to endure the ups and downs of the day-to-day, -day, the loss of loved ones and of compass, to which they could not say goodbye. It seems that they only clung onto their thoughts, 
their actions were derived from this. They believed in what was really right. While in confinement, they preserved their human dignity and rejected humiliation. Mamiya, for example, has always spread so much energy to so many compas, both inside and outside the prison. He has not allowed anxiety, sadness, injustice, and the machine itself to erase the smiles of rage that come from his resistance. Another idea that I want to share with you all is the implications of taking a political position inside prison. On the outside, for example, it is easy to manifest an idea or thought and publish something on social networks. The question, I think, is how do we transform the raw material into action? Trying to be anarchists while being locked up is very difficult. We know beforehand that we will come up against the rules, the authoritarianism, the imposition of certain behaviors. Because we navigate against the current, we are stigmatized in their attempts to align and individualize us at all times. On the other hand, there are clear warning shots from the judicial system. The legal processes will be made as slow as possible, filled with irregularities and delays. The penitentiary system has its delicate arrogance to f*** up the prisoner's daily existence in prison. Sometimes, in the expense of isolation, remaining silent can be a strategy, at least for a certain time. We are limited in our capacities to develop ourselves in a personal and human manner. At all times, little by little, we are trying to free ourselves, the body and the spirit, passing through various emotional stages. We struggle for water here on the inside of the prison. Water belongs to everyone, but here it is not sufficient, neither to drink nor for other uses. We struggle against the food that they impose on us, and we struggle in our work to not depend on the boss. We search to collectivize some of the established processes in the prison. We are against the conditional freedom that people have experienced throughout history. As such, we will continue competing and reconstructing ourselves to be free. Greetings to all the prisoners, to all the imprisoned compass that are in confinement. Prisoners to the street. This week, Kevin Steele speaks to us about being sentenced to 12 years in prison at the age of 17. He touches on a lot of different things, including the influence of the Black Panthers and other groups on his youth, hunger strikes on the inside, the current fight against prisons in New York, and updates on other aspects of his current organizing. Housed in both Rikers and Attica, Kevin talks about what it was like to organize with the National Prison Strike of 2016 while in prison, and then to help support the National Prison Strike in 2018 from the outside. Here he is. My name is Kevin Steele. I'm a, a outside organizer for IWOC and customer workers organizer community, as well as um other organizations. I'm part of the campaign to bring Mamiya Abu Jamal home, and also the No New Jails um, campaign. So, I start with how I was introduced to all three of those, and then just other abolition work I do. So, I was sentenced at 17 years old. At 17 years old, as an adult, for to 12 years for um, assault charges, and even if, um, rewind that a little bit. So even before I was like inside organizing, I had a little um, political advantage um, amongst my peers because my father was 
a part of the nation of gods and earth. So that's like a branch of the nation of Islam. So I was always taught about um, revolutionary people like Fred Hampton, really the Black Panthers. So I had that. I had a little bit of a head start against um, against the, my parents growing up. So now I'm arrested, but I was still um, into the streets. Unfortunately, poverty led me doing nonsense. So I ended up going to Rikers Island, which is the no new jail campaign is to shut down Rikers Island and to I don't talk about that later. But so inside prison, I was. Bounced around. My first spot was Attica at 17 years old, 2011. I was sentenced. In 2011, I went to Attica. And there is... You hear the myth, right? Not the myth, but you hear all the the excitement and everything that surrounds Attica. You know, the riot and all the racist um, pigs that's up there. So you have this 17-year-old kid that's never been in prison. That's um, thrown into probably the worst jail in the country. That you can, the most historical jail, that St. Quentin. So it's like, dang, what do I do, right? So that was traumatizing. I'm getting into it with um, the seals up there because I'm black. And they have this racist ideology. They have this ideology where I'm black and I'm Muslim. So it's two of the worst things you could be in prison, right? So. That was a trauma that overstuck with me. And then, so I bounced around on facilities throughout, the, um, throughout New York. And when I landed in Eastern Correctional Facility, is where I was introduced to Awak through, through one of my friends. And basically, Awak at this time was sending out introduction letters to who they are to random people inside prison. And it just so happened that the person that they sent it to was a friend of mine. And he brought it to me. At this time, I'm organizing. I've done um, um, hunger strikes, which is I don't recommend to no one. Hung, probably hunger strikes is probably the worst idea that uh, an organizer or anyone I think could come up with. That is a horrible idea. But at, this, at that point in time when I did the hunger strike, I've read... Um, Stokely Carmichael, Carmichael raised his um, biography. Um, I can't remember the name of it right now. That's one of the best books I've ever read. And he did a, a hunger strike. But at the end of the chapter, I, I didn't finish reading it at this point. So I said, oh, Stokely did a hunger strike? I'm going to do a hunger strike. So I got a few people, probably like six, six, it was probably six or seven of us that went on a hunger strike for probably about six days. It was the worst experiment. And then, after the fact, so I go back to reading the book, he had the same idea. After the hunger strike was over, he said he would never do a hunger strike again. He told everyone, if you're in prison with me, don't do a hunger strike. I'm not doing it. So it's funny that he had the same thoughts that I had. I said, I would never participate in a hunger strike ever again. So that was the first, and that's like Gandhi, and everyone that I thought of, like, oh, hunger strike, there, that'll get um, changes I need. Worst I did. So after the hunger strike, we did work stoppage, which was good. And then I've done a lot of other um, organizing. I did surveys to actually see what's the um, issue in prison. So at this point, I'm a full fledged inside organizer. The COs know they labeled me as this antagonizer, whatever it is. So I walk right to these people, right to this brother. 
he brings it to me and says I should, um, reach out to them. They're doing something I'm doing. But my, I'm still young at the end, and I have this combative and like um, rebellious ego where I'm like, no, I got it. I don't. And, and that's why um, a lot of the brothers, when you hear from people inside the conversation, they say like, we need support, but they're really like against it. They're confused about it, basically, because we've been let down so many times by organizations, and it's been, like, a confusion of, are they really going to help us? So that's the mindset I had. I said, I'm, I'm all right. I'm a, they're not here with us. They're probably either trying to use our, um, our struggle to help whatever it is that they're doing. That's the mindset I had. So when he brought it to me, I said, all right, nah, I'm okay. I'm gonna I'm continue to do me. I'm gonna organize by myself. I don't need someone outside to help me unless I know them personally, right? So then weeks go by. He brings it to me again. Bro, write them. Really write them. I think they're, they're um, doing something out there. So I write them back. But I write them in a form of trying to get them not to write me back. So I'm like, I'm doing X, Y, and Z. I don't know what you guys are doing. I don't know if you're gonna be scared to say certain things. And they wrote back, like, no, yeah, that's good. Let us know. We'll help you as much as possible. So then that, our relationship grew. And so we, I started doing, um, we have a um, kite also. We have a newsletter and a kite where we have this discussion. We take an excerpt out of the book and we'll discuss it, basically. So I was featured in a few of them while I was in prison. I've written for it. And that really, our relationship really grew when I was like a main um, active member in IWOP while I was inside. So I have, at this point, I realized I was illegally sentenced. This was my first case. I was uh, juvenile. I was an um, adolescent. And they wasn't supposed to charge me as an adult because I was never charged as an adolescent at all. And IWOP helped me understand that. And they helped like really organize and gather people together that I needed them to get to help me come home sooner than 12 years. So that was a blessing. And I've been out here now um, organizing with IWOC. So 2016, to go back to 2016, this was the, the nationwide strike. And this is when, so in New York, I don't know, this, um, core, in New York we have the core craft and the industrial complex, where it's, um, slave wages, as other um states, but a lot of other states do a lot of field working. I know California do like fire, um, the forest fires. In New York, we do a lot of like these. Actually, we make the chairs, the tables, the sasan. So I never worked there because I, I at this time I already had the uh, mindset that the slavery. I'm already in a slave form. I'm not gonna get to that level. So I never worked there, but I know a lot of people that worked there, and unfortunately. There's not a lot of support for people, so that's the best option for them to survive in prison. And I understand that being inside, I understand that they're getting $20 every two weeks, which is pennies, but that's the only money that's going to them. So I understand why they're doing it. But I try to um, gather as much strong-minded people and like-minded people as well to help me put together this like curriculum where we can teach the um, brothers in there like a financial freedom type thing. So I've known brothers in there that's 
extremely gifted at um, financial literacy and and to show different ways to make money because they're also like hustlers at heart so they know how to make money while in prison like selling things like candy and juices and helping people that's in GED so they found other ways to make money outside of the core crap industry so I gathered them and then people to um, teach political education and really we targeted the coal craft workers. This was during the prison strike. And that was a, um, a big success that actually turned out where we got the um, metal shop. The metal shop shut down for two weeks. Yeah, and that was, that was amazing. That was probably the biggest um, success that we had. Unfortunately, the, a lot of us um, were shipped out because of this. We were shipped out through different um, facilities. I was... I was targeted as the um, the ringleader, so I guess in their mind they was trying to play like some reverse psychology and like a um, conquering type thing. So they shipped everyone out except for me to put into the people's mind that I don't know Kevin is either an informant or provocateur, whatever it is. Stop working with him because why he didn't leave? This is what I came up with that. They're not going to move me because they want the people to look at me as an enemy. Because why did not move, everyone else move. But at this time, I'm already um, established with the people. So they're like, no, that's not, that's not true. Y'all trying to um, stir something up between them. So it worked. That was probably the best success I've had during that strike. So fast forward, 2018, I'm released in January. And I'm out organizing. And then another... Um, nationwide prison strike was called in 2018. So, in Iraq, New York, I was part of the media team where I was one of the main speakers where I would go out and speak to different um, stations where I would explain the, the demands that the prisoners came up with and how do we go about um, supporting the strike. And this, we're going to put out a... Um, of um, um like in a, a success rate of how did the 2018 prison strike come about i think around august or september it should be like a big list i think um the national lawyers guild is going to put something out and that's going to be really big Kevin was released in 2018, and we asked Kevin to reflect on the differences between organizing while in prison versus organizing on the outside it felt weird, and I actually I felt um like not lost but a little confused because yeah. I've been inside organizer for so long, and I've never I never organized outside, so I actually didn't know where to start. I didn't know like what should I do. Now that I'm out here, now what do I do to help you guys? And then I know how to ask for help from inside, but now I'm like, how do I actually? go about because I'm, I'm just coming home so I really don't know who to contact I know from inside look at do this and do that and this is how you can help us but out here I don't know physically how to go about getting it done so that was confusing at first I didn't know who to speak to I didn't know who to trust so that was very difficult and just different tactics so I'm not out here I'm not really with um like keen to marching and doing like a lot of the stuff that reformers do. 
I'm not really with that. And the I so in in there, I know if I I do this action, this is a direct action, and with direct response from the pig. Out here is, I don't want to march because I'm I'm probably marching with politicians. I'm marching with a bunch of people that I know that doesn't align with my mindset. So that was also uh, an obstacle that I had to overcome. So the feeling was really like confusion. That's the word that I use, confusion. I didn't know how to go about going um, doing the things, but it turned out pretty well. I went and basically I spoke as well as I could and articulated what it is with the man and how could we be helped. Because in heart, I'm still with the brothers that's inside. So I know what's affecting them. I know what's really affecting them. And I know the demands that they want. I know what could help them in the long run. So that was the biggest That was the biggest obstacle for me. The, the transition from being inside and outside. And the, like the playground was different. I know, I know who's the enemy right then and there inside. Out here is... Who knows? There's so many people that I don't know if they're with me or against me. Inside, I know it's right there in your face. So that's the difference. I walk is, we're doing this um, like a mentorship program where we'll go around the country and try to give um, political education classes to people that's in help. Also in New York, uh, we have this connection with this high school where we go in and speak on policing. Where so in New York, this um the schools and the city, they have metal detectors, and that's an issue for the students. We didn't I, when I was in high school, it wasn't it was an issue, but we was at this time we didn't really care. We thought this was normal for us, but this that's the um, good thing about this um era. They're way more political than when I was growing up. So they have this idea that why are we going through metal detectors and the, the teachers not going through metal detectors and but their parents have got to go through metal detectors. So they feel like discriminated and they feel ostracized behind it. And they ask, they ask I think it's a social studies teacher, is their organization that's willing to like aid us in this process? So they reached out to us. So we have this ongoing like, conflict with the Board of Education where we're trying to get the, um, the removal of the metal detector. And it's really fun because these kids are so, they're so advanced. When I have conversations with them, they're so advanced. It blows my mind. Like, I'm like, damn, when I was 15, 16, 14, I was never thinking this way. So it's, that's like a hope, like a, like something I look forward to. Like continue working with them, and I can't wait to see where they go in the future. So, yeah. So, um, I worked with Mumia to bring him home, and at this moment, he is he's doing very bad health wise, and the doctor said he has two years to go completely blind. He's um struggling with glasses to actually read letters and read books. He's gonna call in later. But he's he's one of the most I've never physically met him because I'm on parole, but I've spoken with him. He's one of the most humble humblest guys I've ever interacted with in my life. So just for him to be on death row for all those years, 
and now to still just be in prison for life is like, is like damn. So and and the campaign, we um, we actually produced this film, Justice on Trial, where we're showing the trial of Mumia Abu Jamal, how they actually buried evidence that could have um, we would have never been saying free Mumia that could have actually got him home in eighty well eighty one that he went to prison. So it's a whole bunch of evidence that we show photographers that show that the um, police was actually tampering with evidence and that they never used in court. We show judges. Um, we show a whole bunch. I don't want to give as much details because we're, um, we're most likely going to show it tonight. But it's amazing and it's sad as well that why they did this to him. He was a journalist. At the end, of, even if he was a Black Panther, he was still a journalist. And if he was a white journalist, this would have never happened. And it's just sad that this happened to him. And also, to um, another side point, to speak on all three organizations, no new jails. So in New York, the um, the city is trying to shut down Rikers Island and open up um, four, four new jails in Bronx, Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn. They're not going to open up in Staten Island. The idea, my, what I came to conclusion was they won't open up in Staten Island because there's no money in locking people up in Staten Island. Staten Island is very small. So they're going to ship everyone from Staten Island to either Brooklyn or Queens. And the idea that they came up with is that they're going to be closer to family. Um, inmates is now going to be closer to family. No more traveling. And it's going to be less violent. All all those reasons are for the simple fact it's the idea of prison is what's bad. Like the concept of every the concept of prison and structure is what forces violence. So in seventy nineteen seventy one there was um a Stanford project where the um Stanford students they reenact a prison system type thing where they had mock guards and mock inmates to show how it really is. This project was supposed to run for I think a year or so. The project lasted a few weeks. Because they had to shut it down. Because the guards took on the idea that they was really prison guards. And they was physically beating up these people. These are these are students and regular civilians. Inmates, the, the mock inmates, really became... They had this idea that they was really trapped in something. And that they wasn't pretending. That they really took on these roles as if they really did a crime. And they need to be punished. Some of them rebelled and some of them succumbed to the the um, abuse. It shows the idea that you give certain people power, how they abuse it, and if you take, if you strip people from human rights, how they react to it. That just shows, that I always use that example to show that even if you shut down Rikers Island and open up these mini jails and the bubbles, it's the idea of jail that's going with it still. So it's still going to be violence in the, in the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and prison. It's still gonna be this um, cycle of oppression from the the guards to the enslaved people. Also, that if I'm I'm from the Bronx, they're not when they say they they're moving you closer to your family. If I commit a crime in Brooklyn, they're not gonna lock me up in the Bronx. They're gonna lock me up in Brooklyn. They don't explain that if you catch a crime outside your borough. 
that's the bubble they're going to house you in. They're not going to house you in your bubble. So you're still not being closer to your family. So it's all bullshit. And they try to paint this pretty picture. Oh, you're going to be able to eat. You're going to have Starbucks, which is another company that's crazy. So they paint this pretty picture that always like a college campus, which is ridiculous. And we're combatant and no new jobs. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at KiteLine at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.